Are you watching television? If so, it is most unwise. G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who in the audio medium. My name's Dwayne. And my name is Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. G'day Philip, how's things there with you? Yeah, things I'm loving are your, good. I'm loving your artwork on your back wall there. Um, since you've stopped using the background so much, I'm really enjoying uh, your little collection of Daleks plus your artwork too. Fantastic. Yes, well, I, I, I'm the piano. I'm, I'm slowly taking over this room, and the piano moved in <laughs> over the weekend, and so I've got the whole history yeah. of the Daleks now growing on my piano, and I've got three more uh, prints coming. So today we're going to be reviewing a release that has been released today. It's the 4th of August, and uh, a brand new release from BBC Audio. It's a, it's a, a new Doctor Who story called The Resurrection Plant, I find it really hard to say that, Philip. Because uh, my, my accent, my accent is plant, but it's pronounced plant. The resurrection plant by Will Hadcroft, and we've got Will with us for our episode today. So welcome, Will. Thank you very much, Dwayne and Philip. It's uh, a joy to be here. I've listened to so many of your others. It's uh, a privilege to be a guest. It's great to have you here, Will. I bet you're thrilled to to have this uh, story finally released. Oh, I am. It's been a long time coming. I was commissioned to write it in 2019. Um, and then, of course, COVID hit. One of the reasons for the delay, I think, was that Fraser Hines doesn't have his, his home recording kit, as some of the other actors do. Uh, so the, the recording had to be delayed until COVID was uh, clear. So it's been a good couple of years in the making. Yeah, I'm so glad it's finally out. So tell us a little bit about yourself uh, as far as fandom goes. Now, um, I've, my backdrop is, uh, is one of our shared fandoms, but tell us about your Doctor Who fandom first. Right. Well, I've been a fan all my life, so I'm 52 years old now. Um, I have very, very vague memories of John Pertwee. I actually didn't realise until I, I, I watched uh, The Time Monster again I think it was when it first came out on DVD, that um, the Cronovore, you know, that, that, that creature that comes from the time vortex, which is uh, realised as some bloke in, in, in a white blanket <laughs> flapping about and screeching and being swung around on cat wires and doesn't look convincing at all. Um, I realised that I actually was scared stiff of that thing when it was originally broadcast. But then I looked at when it was broadcast, and that was 1972, so uh, I was two. So I'm not surprised I was scared to death of it. I didn't realise until I saw it again that that's probably my very first memory of Doctor Who at age two, which is remarkable. But you kept going back. 
Well, I, I think I was probably sat on my dad's lap or something like that, you know, w- watching it then, uh, because uh, it wouldn't be something that my mother would want me to watch. My first proper memories of it are Tom Baker's first season, so I would have been four by then. I can remember having, um, I had a nightmare about the um, Sontaran probe in the Sontaran experiments. And it's funny watching it now, it looks so flimsy and you know, not very well realized, that thing. But as a four year old, I found that very uh, frightening, that thing gliding around on the moors uh, and grabbing people with wire strands. And um, so I had a nightmare where I was hiding behind this rock and the Sontaran probe was very close by and I was so frightened, I was wetting myself, you know. Uh, so that's the very beginnings of, of watching Doctor Who. And then I suppose I, ca- I became more of a fan of it around about 1976, 7. I remember the Robots of Death being uh, repeated. I think they did, I think they did it over, over Christmas time. They knitted it together into, it was either a feature length, full, you know, like a TV movie, or they put it into two halves. So rather than it being a four-parter, it was a two-parter. But I can remember going into school on Monday and uh, with a couple of other friends striding around the playground with my arms out, outstretched, panting, kill the humans. <laughs> so, so that was the, begin- the beginnings of it really getting under my skin. And then I think it was cemented in 1979 when Doctor Who Weekly started to be published, the forerunner to Doctor Who magazine. So Doctor Who Weekly was just a comic, uh, really. It had a big comic strip in it and a few small articles. But that's when I started, started to become aware of the production side of Doctor Who, how it was made, previous incarnations of the Doctor that my parents had talked about but I'd never seen. And of course, photographs were being published of the previous Doctors and I became aware of its history then. And then we get to season 18, the title sequence and the theme music are radically altered. That got me fascinated with that side of things. And the regeneration of Tom Baker into Peter Davison. So now I was experiencing what my parents had told me about that different actors play it. And then the five faces of Doctor Who, I think you'll be aware of that. It was a a repeat run in 1981 in the autumn on BBC Two, because John Nathan Turner was um, afraid that young viewers of my generation wouldn't accept another actor playing the Doctor if they didn't get that others had played played him previously to Tom Baker. So that was that was the first time I'd seen any other Doctors bar Tom Baker, the Five Faces of Doctor Who. They repeated it. Um, one episode a day, Monday to Thursday, for five weeks. So you had An Unearthly Child was the first one, The Crotons was the second one, Carnival of Monsters was the third one. Then they showed The Three Doctors uh, on on week four, which I utterly loved. Um, And finally, a repeat of Logopolis on week five, showing the regeneration into Peter again. So by then, that that was it. I was I was well and truly a died died in the wolf fan, you know, hardcore, and have remained so ever since. 
Were you starting to write at that time? A lot of authors uh, we speak to were, were writing lots of stories in those younger days and being inspired by by Doctor Who, not only on television, but the Target books was, for fans of our age, uh, fans of Doctor Who at that time, the Target books were uh, one of the few ways to revisit Doctor Who. Yes. Um, the very first book, in inverted commas, <laughs> was um, I, I got an exercise book, uh, covered it in just white, white paper, drill an illustration on the front, and I, I wrote this story that Doctor Who Weekly used to have a comic strip called Tales from the TARDIS, uh, where there would be like a little image of Tom Baker at the start narrating a classic story. So, for example, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde, uh, they would tell the story of Jekyll and Hyde in comic strip form. So it was really not a Doctor Who story at all. It was a classic story with a little bit from Tom Baker at the beginning or an image of Tom Baker. Uh, so I thought, well, I want to come up with something of mine. So I came up with uh, my own acronym, which was SHATM, S-H-A-T-M, which stood for Space, Hyperspace and Time Machine. <laughs> I was 10 when I did this. And I called it Tales from the Shatton. And it was an American telephone box rather than a police box. This is pre-Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. so. They obviously nicked that off me at age 10. Um, and I wrote this story about uh, <laughs> Dr. Bill. is <laughs> um, obviously me at age 10 uh, and his time-traveling American telephone box. And uh, his companion was a girl called Tina, who was uh, a girl I had a big crush on at the time. <laughs> so she became my companion. And the master in it was um, a lad called Carl who was um, a boy who Tina had a big crush on in real life. And I was insanely jealous of him. So I made him the villain of the story. And I, saved, I saved Tina from the evil cow. Uh, so I took this, I took this, I did three of these. I took these into school in my last year of primary school. So I was 10 going on 11. And when we had library class, everybody got their books off the shelf that they wanted and I took out these three handwritten books that I'd done and the the, the children around me went oh he's written his own books and they went to the teacher saying sir can I read the they used to call me Bill in those days can we can um, we read Bill's books please and he wasn't bothered he was marking work from a previous lesson so he didn't care what we did as long as we were quiet so he said yes and th these books were being passed around the class and every, everyone was reading them. And that, that was really my first taste of, of not just writing, but having an audience and an audience that appreciated what I was doing. Although it di didn't take them very long to rename it Tales from the Shittum. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> which, I, which I had to get, get over quickly because uh, it's a, an obvious gag. Uh, and a 10-year-old is going to think of that. So uh, it was rechristened Tales from the Shittum. Uh, but that, that was my first taste of being um, being popular, really, for my writing. As I, I wasn't really a popular child at school. I was the odd geeky one, you know? We, we all know what that feels like. So to be suddenly odd geeky but popular because of it 
was a new experience for me. The first time I saw my name in print, Doctor Who Weekly ran a, a competition called Call the Shots. What you had to do is they, they, they did a, like a cartoon strip and you had to come up with the gun noise across the ray gun. So a written, a written word to describe the sound. And I couldn't think of any. So I said to my mum, I said, uh, I can't think of anything for this. And she said, what about Zwiesk? And she said it like that. And I said, how do you write that down? So she said, well, Z-W-E-E-E-E-E-S-K, exclamation mark. So I wrote that down put it on a postcard and sent it into Doctor Who Weekly. And uh, lo and behold, I was one of a hundred winners of the Doctor Who sound effects LP record. Um, and that's the first time I ever saw my name in print in Doctor Who Weekly in the list of a hundred winners. Um, and that had a profound effect on me as I'd, I'd never seen my name in a magazine or any publication before. But that kind of set cast the spell in a way of wanting to be a writer. So those two experiences really sent me off in this direction. And you've written a, a few books over the last 20 years, but before we talk about that journey and up to this point where the resurrection plant's been released, Philip, guess what? You thought you were going to get away with it today, didn't you? I thought we had skipped it, actually. I thought we bypassed it. No, we us. have not skipped it. There's a rabbit hole. Let's go. Me, me. <laughs> okay, so my rabbit hole is specifically for Will. Uh, and as you can see, my background is a, tri a buried tripod. And I want to talk to you briefly about the tripod. So we're going to take a little sidestep from Doctor Who for a moment because the Wonderful. tripods was, in fact, uh, a big influence on you as well and the works of John Christopher, yeah. uh, whose real name is actually Samuel. Is it Yud or Yowd? Um, I, I've been pronouncing it Yowd and then I found out recently that's wrong. <laughs> and it's Sam Yud. <laughs> Sam Yud. So it's spelled Y-O-U-D, but Sam According to his, his daughter, Rose, he did have a, have a phase of calling himself Sam Yowd, which is possibly where I got it from. Uh, yeah. but, for, but throughout their lives growing up, they always, they always identified as Yud. Um, so they're not quite sure why he switched it to Yowd and then switched it back to Yud. But it is Sam Yud. Yeah. Yeah, we'll call him John Christopher for, for, these, for, for the purpose of the tripods. Um, and I didn't realise until I was listening to Tripod's cast that you had such a close connection with John Christopher, mm. uh, having met him and spent spent some time with him. Uh, but what was it that grabbed you first about those stories? Was it the television series or was it the books? It was the television series, yeah. Um, I can remember the trailer for episode one. So uh, the... the announcer was saying the tripods are coming the tripods are coming and then you'd see that the foot glide over the fence at the beginning of episode one and plunge into the pond and then the whole model comes into shot and then the claw coming out and picking up the boy and putting him inside and then later on he emerges with the wire mesh cap on his head and a very zoned out expression on his face and then the idea that the the entire populace is conditioned 
uh, at age 16 by these tripod things uh, to be subservient and they, they live in quaint villages and have a happy life, but, but they don't have uh, freedom of choice. They don't have uh, the freedom to choose not to serve the tripods. Well, first of all, special effects, uh, just that shot of the tripod striding into the pond. While by today's standards, it's a bit clunky um, and rather obvious how they did it. Back in 1984, it was state-of-the-art state effects for British television, much superior to anything Doctor Who had ever served. So I was drawn by the special effects, but also drawn by the idea of people being capped. And um, again, as a, as a, a rather lonely geek, <laughs> I tended to see the world as, as conditioned and brainwashed and uh, people all seemed to be going one way and I was going the other. So the idea of the world being conditioned, but only a few young people can see the truth of things um, and they're going in another direction. That really appealed to me on a very personal and emotional level. So I was draw, drawn into the television series. And then when it aired, it, it was only sort of two or three episodes in and kids at school were realizing it, it may well be called the tripods, but there are not many tripods in it. Um, and that you could go for several episodes without even seeing one. A lot of my peers at school, they dropped off from watching it and gave up. But it was the idea of people being capped that kept me with it. Uh, and also, when the tripods did appear, they were magnificent, you know? I remember um, a reviewer some 10 years later in the 1990s, TV Zone, was reviewing the video releases of series one. And the reviewer was called Nigel Robinson, a name known to Doctor Who fans. And I just remember when he got to the third cassette, he was, he was talking there about um, the episodes where Will escapes from the chateau and then he's snatched from his horse by a tripod during the night. And, and then when he's released, he's, he finds out that he's not capped and can't understand why why was he taken inside a tripod but not capped. And then he finds that um, that strange button under his armpit, which is a tracking device. And Nigel Robinson, after reviewing that episode, said in his review, I've never forgotten the quote, because I thought it was so true. He said, you know, the series has its reputation for being slow and sometimes tortuously slow. But when it shines, it shines quite brightly. And I thought, yeah, Nigel, you, you've summed it up there. That is the appeal of the television programme. We're going back to 1984. When I finished um, series one and the continuity announcer said, Will Henry and Beanpole will continue their fight against the tripods next year. And I thought, I can't wait till next year. So I'd seen the uh, TV tie-in releases at my local uh, WH Smith store. Uh, and I saw that they'd done the three books, but they'd also done a three-in-one called the Tripods Trilogy. So I bought that and I read The White Mountains and was relieved to find that there, were, there was no, uh, the Chateau sequence was not nearly as long as it was on television. And uh, there was no grape harvesting family in it, you know, uh, that the book really rattled along at quite a pace. And then when you got into the city of golden lead, my goodness, it really, 
it really took off. Uh, so I couldn't wait for series two then. Uh, having read The City of Gold and Lead, and then of course we get to the, the last episode of series two, Has It All Been For Nothing? I didn't realize the full Im impact and import of that statement. So I read The Pool of Fire, looking forward to series three, and of course it never surfaced. And uh, 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 the head of English at school had read it in a, in a paper that he gets uh, that they had cancelled series three. And I refused to accept it because even, you know, at age 15, I was thinking, well, why would anybody, why would a television company make, make and broadcast two thirds of a trilogy and then just not bother with the final third? So I, would, I wouldn't believe it until September 1986 rolled up and, and the trial of a Time Lord had taken the slot that would have been occupied by the third series of the Tripods. I was thrilled that Doctor Who was back, but gutted that the Tripods was not going to be completed. So I, I used to read and reread the trilogy. You know, every couple of years I'd get it out and read it again. I was absolutely in love with it. And I used to fantasize about meeting John Christopher. I used, I used to read the part of the book and think, oh, it's wonderful, this. And then I'd look at the cover and see John Christopher and think, I wish, I wish I could meet him. So years later, in the early 2000s, I guess, when the internet was becoming popular, I was, I was told, I can't remember who it is. I wish I, wish I knew who it was. Maybe they're watching this now and they can identify themselves. Somebody said to me, you need to go and look at this strand on the internet, this uh, forum. There's somebody claiming to be the author, John Christopher, and he's taking questions from fans. So I followed the link and went to this page and this Sam Ude, <laughs> Uh, was taking questions about the tripods and the guardians and the lotus caves and the death of grass and answering them. And uh, his email address was there, so I dropped him a line. And I was staggered when he replied. Um, and I, you know, that on its own was fantastic. Um, and then he just happened to say after a few exchanges, if you ha ever happen to be in Rye in East Sussex, Will, please do drop in for a cup of tea. So I thought, right, I'm going to make sure I am in Ryan in Sussex. <laughs> and so, uh, so we were visiting my, my brother-in-law who lived uh, and I was able to use that as a jumping off point to get to Rye. So I contacted Sam and said, uh, I will be in your neck of the woods this coming week. Is it okay? To is it still okay to come and see you? And he said, yeah. So my wife and I went down. We spent a, a good couple of hours in his living room and Sam bringing a tea and biscuits on a tray. And I was so overwhelmed. I didn't speak for 15 minutes. <laughs> and he actually said, uh, you don't seem to be saying very much, Will. And my wife said, I, I think Sam is a bit overawed uh, to, because it was a, you know, obviously a big deal to me. I was just—I can remember him bringing this tray of tea and biscuits in and thinking, "Flipping heck, <laughs> this is John Christopher bringing me tea and biscuits in his own living room," you know. And we we had a we had a bit of a chat. I kept 
I asked him every question I could think of about the tripods, and I think it got on his nerves, to be honest, <laughs> because that's all I was talking about. I, I thought, I'm going to mine this for everything I can, because uh, it's possibly my only chance to ask him everything I could think of. And after a while, he said, I'm, I have to ask you, Will, have you read anything else that I've written? <laughs> I think I was getting on his nerves. And then he invited me up to his study and, and he, he popped out a couple of uh, paperbacks, the Guardians and the Lotus Caves, and, and he signed them for me uh, to encourage me, I suppose, to read something else that he'd written. I had bought the Prince in Waiting trilogy, although I hadn't read it. So I had that on me and he signed that for me too. And of course, the Tripos trilogy. So that, that is a, a, a very sweet and deeply treasured memory. That was in 2004. What a thrill. Now, I have to ask, was he aware of the criticism from some that the Tripods is a War of the Worlds ripoff? And did he have anything to say about that? Yeah, he was he was on um, a BBC Four documentary called Sci-Fi Britannia. I don't know if you guys ever saw saw that. It might be on YouTube. And he was interviewed on there about the death of grass. Of course, tripods is mentioned as well. And I think on um, the tripods DVD release, the cult of the tripods, if you're aware of that uh, documentary, he says there that after completing the trilogy, he, he started to realize it had, had similarities to War of the Worlds, the three-legged monsters. But he, he qualified it by saying that it was a key book in his childhood, the War of the Worlds. So he had subconsciously stolen the, the tripod shape, if you like, the tripod idea from that. Because the story is completely different to, to the War of the Worlds, apart from the invasion aspect. One can't say it's it's a direct ripoff of the story of War of the Worlds. But yeah, the, the idea of tripods stalking the land clearly does come from that. We were talking about how the tripods were realized in the television program and how it's quite obvious watching it that if if just one leg lifted up off the floor, the entire thing would tip over um, and that would be the end of the tripod. And he, he was laughing and saying that he, he thought that often himself, seeing them realized on television. And he said he just kept thinking to himself, why didn't I give them four legs? So, so he was aware, a, aware of the War of the Worlds connection, but also aware that physically they wouldn't work. Um, certainly not realized that way with telescopic legs. Now, here's a question for you, Will. Do you, I, I know it's probably pie in the sky because Disney's got the rights and whatever, but do you think the tripods could possibly lend itself to audio adaptation? Well, yes, it could do. Um, whether or not, as you say, whether or not that would ever happen is Disney. And when I was speaking to Sam Ude, he said that Disney owned the rights to it lock, stock and barrel, the entire thing. He said the, the, only, thi the only thing they didn't buy up was talking book rights. So that's just basically a single voice narrating the book. Uh, and there is that is available. I think, is he called William Gaminara? And the actor who was in um, Silent Witness, he reads them in the first person as Will. 
so you can get the talking book uh, of the whole thing. But as for a full cast audio drama, I know that the four principal actors from the television series are all up for it. They would all, all gladly do it. Now we have the means of um, remote recording. You know, John Shackley, who played Will, is based in Chile, but they could do it over the internet, couldn't they? Mm. Jim Baker, Easy. who played Henry, um, is up for it. Kerry Seal, who played Beanpole, yeah. Robin Hayter, who played Fritz, yeah. They would all happily reprise their roles and make that third series as an audio. I think Big Finish have looked into it, and it's, it's just a rights issue. It's, there's no Disney, eh? Yeah, I actually, uh, I couldn't get anybody, I couldn't get any young people that I knew to be willing to participate. But I actually adapted the whole of the White Mountains for an audio myself as a, as a, a fan project. And I was, I, I would have been happy to have, you know, sorted out the sound effects and the background music. And I, I certainly, after Ken Freeman released the Pool of, Pool of Fire Suite, uh, I saw then that I could take that music, which was written for the unmade third series, and use that as instrumental in an audio, and it would suit it perfectly. Uh, but I, I couldn't get any, anybody, or you know, family and friends, I couldn't get anyone to, to, to participate in playing the, the main characters in it. So it never happened. But I still, I still have the scripts uh, that I wrote. So it could still be done if I could find willing participants. Um, so I, I know it would work as an audio because I've wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. Well, maybe, maybe it can happen as a fan project. Who knows? Who knows? Might be able to get somebody. Mm. Sounds good. All right. Let's drag ourselves out of this rabbit hole because we want to talk about the resurrection plant. And here is a clip. Hello. Zoe called as she stood in the reception area. Is there anyone here? The doctor pointed at the corners of the ceiling. Cameras, he said. Automated, I imagine. Why don't you use that wee magic wand to make them blind? Jamie offered. Zoe laughed. Magic wand? Hi. Jamie replied, eager to quell her mockery of him. It confuses electric things and undoes screws. Fumbling in one of his baggy pockets, the doctor said, It isn't a magic wand, Jamie. He took out a small silver pen-like device. Zoe stared at it. What's that? It's the Sonic Screwdriver, the Doctor beamed triumphantly. Pointing it at each camera, he pressed a button and a high-pitched noise was emitted. That'll give us some privacy. Or alert the authorities, Zoe responded. His curiosity peaked. The Doctor ignored the remark. The small room ended with a pair of doors akin to those of a vault. Now, how to get in? He waved the screwdriver over a small electrical box on the wall, and the doors obeyed, the hydraulic mechanism hissing as they parted. Zoe and the Doctor couldn't get over the contrast between the level of technology on display in the plant compared to the streets and houses outside. Jamie had seen that the bricks were old and dirty with soot and grime, while the inside of the plant was modern, clean and white. But, as was often the case, he failed to grasp just how stark the contrast was. So, Will, you're very, very brave uh, coming on to, uh, to to not only talk to us about this, but Philip and I are going to review it uh, as Ooh. well. So, because we both heard it, and uh, that brave does that make foolish. you nervous? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah, 
did I, did I, did I really want to come on this show? I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> so tell us about the, the process. Like you, you've written a few books, you've written a few books for mm -hmm. young adults, uh, over the last 20 years. What's yeah. led you from that up to this point where the resurrection plant was released? Right. Well, the, the first book I, I wrote, uh, was Android. That's A-N-N-E-D-O-E-R-O-Y-D, obviously um, a pun on the word android. So she's an android schoolgirl who's left in the care of three uh, young, well, they're not even teenagers, they're, they're approaching the teens. Uh, so they've started secondary school, but they're, they're sort of 11, 12, thereabouts. So Android and Century Lodge um, was the first one. I had it published by CK Publishing, which was um, an indie publisher based in the north of England that went out of business a, a year or two later. I, I then published with the help of a, a writer in Northern Ireland called Daryl Sloan, who had, I'd been uh, having some exchanging some emails with. And he'd also written for a fanzine called Really Quite Cosmic in the 90s. And I knew his name from that, pub published by... Gavin Wilson, RQC. That that was probably my first first uh, yeah. Let me think. That would have been 1993-94. So that was my first attempt at trying to be published. RQC and and Daryl contributed stories and articles to that as well. So I I found him on the internet years later, and he self published a book called Chaos. That's spelled uh, C H I O N. It's Greek or Latin or something, uh, and means like snow. So he, he'd written this story about a substance that drops in the night, covers the whole country. It looks like snow, but it isn't. And when you touch it or stand on it, you're stuck to it, basically. I asked him to help me with the first Android sequel. So I did Android and the House of Shadows. He copy edited it, typeset it for me and set it up on lightning source for me um and i thought right you know this is it now we're on our way but we weren't on our way it, it didn't even sell 100 copies i don't think um but because self-publishing and promoting yourself particularly the promotion side of it is so hard if you're doing it on your own it's so hard then um i had a chance meeting with John Ainsworth, who had edited Cult Times magazine for Visual Imagination and had done some PR for Big Finish and had directed some Big Finish plays. And, and it was involved in the audio visuals, the, the nonprofit for, forerunner to Big Finish. And I didn't know, I didn't know who he was because uh, I didn't know what he looked like. So I, I was just talking to him <laughs> and then I just asked him, you know, what you know, what do you do? And he, and he explained that he worked in the media and, uh, and said, I edit cult, I edited cult times and I work for big Finnish productions. Have you heard of them? And I said, have I heard of them? I've got half of them. So, uh, a friendship with John Ainsworth started there around about 2005. It was around the time that the Chris Eccleston series came. Um, so I knew him socially and uh, work-wise we were working in an office together that's how i met him he was in between media jobs and had took an ordinary office job to fill the gap 
So just for a few months, I, I knew John Ainsworth as a workmate. I'd found Fine Line Productions, which was a, a Doctor Who fan audio thing run by Gareth Preston. And I'd submitted a, a story, an audio story, to his range of doc, Doctor Who audios. And uh, Gareth had accepted it. And um, because I knew John did a bit of amateur acting, I asked him if he would be in it. And he said, yeah. So he, John Ainsworth played the main villa, villain in this fan production called The Cateth Factor. That's spelled C-A-T-A-T-H. So it's Cateth, but pronounced Cateth. Um, and he was the main villain in that. Then we passed the company and he went into Big Finish full time. Uh, and I didn't see him again for ages. Uh, but then he found he found uh, Hearst Books, who were bit, they were publishing Doctor Who fans, uh, Doctor Who related things, some Doctor Who actors, and fans who fancied themselves as being an author. You know, he'd give them a chance. Uh, so John put me in touch. We're not in touch with him, uh, but. Uh, sent me in that direction. He said, I think this might be a good home for Android. Why don't you try it? So around that time, I was contacted, this would be 2009 now, I was contacted by, on the internet, by a lady called Teresa Cutts, who had read a couple of my books, no, one of my books, an autobiographical piece called The Feelings Unmutual, which is to do with autism and Asperger's syndrome, because I am uh, on the very thin end of the spectrum, but I am on it. And she'd read that because she was doing a college uh, course on it and wanted to quote some passages from my book. So she said to me, um, what, you know, what else are you doing? And in 2009, I was so disappointed and disillusioned with the whole pro-publishing thing and self-publishing side of it. I said, I. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't even know if I'm going to do anything. I was. I really felt like giving up, to be honest. Uh, I said I've got no clue when it comes to sales and promotion and PR, and I clearly haven't got the skills. And she said, "Well, I work in PR, so how would you? How would you like if I did a bit of PR for you?" <laughs> so we set up. Well, long story short, we set up our own little indie publishing outfit, FBS, which stands for Fabulous Books, FBS Publishing. And we, we published some people who had fallen by the wayside when Hearst Books went out of business. And we got um, John Ainsworth to help us out with typesetting and graphics. And another gentleman called Scott Burdett. Uh, when John Ainsworth wasn't available, Scott Burdett would help us out. Uh, another name known to Doctor Who fans. Um, this wonderful artist called Owen Claxton, um, there's a Doctor Who fan called Jack Dexter, and he recommended Owen Claxton to us, uh, and he painted our covers. If you go to the FBS website, you'll see the, the artwork of Owen Claxton. Um, he was a great find. And then... Um, the next sort of move was um, Tim, Tim Benton, the actor who played David Archer 
continues to play David Archer in the radio for soap, The Archers, in Britain, but is known to Doctor Who fans for having appeared in a, a good number of big Finnish Doctor Whos and Blake Sevens. And I just happened to say, I was listening to a Blake Seven that he'd been in. And I just happened to say to Teresa, you know, your mate, I was, she's a big fan of uh, The Archers. So I used to say, your mate, Tim Bentick. I'd never met him. But I said, your mate Tim Bentinck's in this. And then we, we started uh, discussing, well, you know, I wonder if he's published anything. <laughs> and she found on, on the internet um, a self-published children's book of Colin the Campervan that Tim Bentinck had up uploaded to Kindle. So I said, uh, find out if he has a website and uh, contact him. She was, you know, she, it was like it was. It was like she was being naughty, you know. She was. Do you think we should, you know, this kind of thing? And uh, I said, yeah. Ask, ask him. How would he feel about republishing that as a pro proper paperback, fully illustrated, and show him Owen's artwork? So she did, and he said that's a fantastic idea. So we republished, and published for the first time in paperback. Uh, Colin the camper camper van, Tim Benton. That then led us to publishing Colin Baker. Um, Colin had published a couple of books of um, newspaper articles. He, he writes for his local free press and collected a number of newspaper articles together. And through Tim Hurst, he published Look Who's Talking and um, Second Thoughts, that was it. But of course, they'd gone out of print because T Tim Hurst's company had folded. So we said to, I met Colin at the Doctor Who convention and said, how would you like to do another newspaper collection of your articles? So he published Sixth Sense through us. Uh, you can still get it. His daughter, Lucy Baker, uh, published her children's book, Rhino Wants a Wife. Uh, I'll tell you a bit more about that later, I think. But uh, that was published through us as well. So we were gaining some momentum. We've gone from self-published to publishing other people to publishing minor celebrities, and maybe in one case, a bit more than a minor celebrity. Um, and then um, I bumped into John Ainsworth at Big Finish Day in 2018, I think it was. He, he was there being um, the steward for Grand Chapel in Blake Seven. She was there as a guest and he was the, her steward and and interviewing her on stage. So I crashed into him at Big Finish Day. And uh, it was great to, to see him after all this time. I just happened to say to him, John, if you're ever in a position to hire writers, don't forget me. And uh, in 2019, I got an email um, saying that the producer of the BBC Audio Originals, Michael Stevens, wants to, wants to try out some new writers. And John was the script editor of that range. So he, he thought, right, I'll see if Will has any ideas and dropped me a line. And I sent him three, three short paragraphs. And uh, one of them was the sanctity of death, which is the resurrection plant. And they commissioned that. Were they all second doctor pitches or were they various doctors that you had? I had, yeah, three. So I, I decided uh, to go with three different doctors. Um, I wanted to do Colin Baker, 
because when I was a teenager, Colin Baker really was the doctor for me. Uh, Tom Baker was the doctor in my primary school years. He played it for seven years, the whole of my primary school years. I loved Peter. I, when it was broadcast, uh, I had problems with him not being that eccentric, not being very doctory, um, a solid performance and a star name and all that stuff that people always say about him. But he didn't feel very doctorish to me. So I liked the series and I liked him and I, I was a fan. But when Colin came along, it felt like we were back to what Doctor Who is, this eccentric alien character. And although some people found him unlikable, I, I did not find him unlikable. I, I, I was having problems at school, interacting socially, felt very awkward socially, uh, slightly paranoid as a result, uh, and lonely. And then here's this doctor who is putting his foot in it all the time, says the wrong thing, is, it is inappropriate in certain situations, um, doesn't, seem, doesn't seem to be aware of the impact he's having on other people, especially on Perry. His dress sense is terrible, but he thinks he looks great. You know, This character um, really chimed with me. And it was my dream as a teenager to, to write for Colin Baker as the Doctor. So when I got the, the chance to do the BBC Audio original, I thought, this is it. If, if I could write something for the sixth Doctor, maybe Colin would read it, you know? But then I looked at the range, the recent releases, and there were some sixth Doctor ones, but other people read them, you know? Nicola Bryant read one of them. Uh, so it wasn't a foregone conclusion that it would be Colin, even if they said yes to a sixth Doctor story. Um, so then I thought, well, I'm going to have to write one in the first person so that Colin has to read it. <laughs> uh, and I do actually have a really good idea for that, uh, should I be asked to, to submit anymore. But I'd also seen that they had done a few of them, and I thought, well, jo John said to me, you can have any of the first 12 Doctors. That's the rule. Jodie, you know, is untouchable because she's the one on, currently on television. But all, the, all the, the first 12 are up for grabs. And I thought, well, they've done several of Colin. Maybe I shouldn't go there. Um, so I, I pitched what was originally called the Sanctity of Death, which was Seventh Doctor and Ace originally. I pitched that years ago to Virgin Publishing when they did the New Adventures. Uh, it was either Virgin Publishing or BBC Books. My, my memory says it was Virgin Publishing. It is that old. But for this BBC pitch, I had a Sylvester and Sophie one, a Seventh Doctor and Ace one. I can't remember what the other one was. I'd have to go and look it up. But I decided to switch to the Sanctity of Death. I thought I'll, because I'd already put Seventh Doctor and Ace in another pitch, another idea. I thought I'll switch this. To the second doctor jamie and zoe because i've always had fondness for that lineup and also being a bit coy i had a i had a memory of john telling me that the second doctor was his favorite doctor so i thought i'll, I'll make it the second doctor maybe maybe he'll say yes then <laughs> because it's the second doctor so there was a bit of that going on, on, on and and they went for that one good plan to appeal to john that way so are you ready? Do you want to hear what we think of it? Brace myself. Go for it. 
Okay, Philip, give us your feedback. You're freshly off listening to it over the last day or so, aren't you? I am indeed. Um, yeah, I don't think you have to brace yourself too much. Um, <laughs> let me, I'll say, I mean, I think it was a few things. We, we don't want to give any spoilers away, so we want to say fairly general in terms of uh, plot, plot and what it's about. Um, I mean, since the second Doctor, I think that the story would only work with certain Doctors. Uh, mm. Because it's a, it, it is actually a fairly working class story in terms of it needs a working class doctor a doctor who can relate well to the working classes um and i think that, you know so you look at seventh or eighth would have, you know seventh and eighth would have, and ace would have worked um i think tenth doctor would have worked no sorry ninth doctor would have worked yeah. um or second so i think in terms of it had to be one of those three doctors for the story to have worked and i think i think patrick Trailer's doctor actually works really well uh in the setting and i think I mean, uh, yeah, and, and just in terms of having Zoe, who doesn't quite get get it, compared with the Doctor, who's able, able to show some righteousness. Um, it is what you said earlier that you're from Birmingham. That actually explains, I think, a bit about the setting in terms of the um, the factory background and the working class sort of um, mentality, and the <laughs> some ways the lack of care for the, the for the working class. So I think a lot of those ideas came out um, in terms of the actual story. Um, without giving away major plot devices, actually, the main one, actually, the whole thing is a fairly major one, so we don't talk about it. Um, I do like how the characters play on top of each other, and I do like the, the main scenario that keeps reviewing coming up and o over, um, which, of course, is the idea of resurrection. I guess it's in the title, so I guess that's not a spoiler. Mm. Um, but there are some nice characters, and there's a lovely family situation, I think, that really appeals. The opening was a very powerful opening. Fraser Hines is magnificent with his reading. And I think the thing the thing that gets me is Fraser just falls into a story so perfectly, and of course you know playing narrator Jamie and the Doctor um, superbly. Um, I I still love his second Doctor. To me, when I hear Fraser do Patrick, it is just wonderful with all his his, his arrows done perfectly. So yeah, um, I was you know the hour or so this went for. I was engaged the whole time. Um, I loved where it developed from. I loved some of the passion behind it. And um, some great ideas. Dwayne, what do you think? I really enjoyed this. Uh, it got me wondering whereabouts in season six it was set because Zoe has a, has some um, some more to do with computer language and things like that. So that sort of f faded a little bit towards the end of season six, but it was utilised well here. Um, you've You've put in some nice uh, idiosyncrasies of the second doctor pursing his lips, you know, and, and the way Fraser says, oh, dear, you know, just like Patrick Troughton would have done uh, was fantastic. Uh, I love the sound effects, too. So we've got the, the sonic screwdrivers used in there and we get the original sonic screwdriver sound, which uh, always gives me nice uh, sentimental feels for that era. Um, can you believe this? Can you believe it, Philip? I've written some notes. I'm impressed. And you should be impressed because it doesn't happen very often. Um, now, the artwork uh, is it's a really cool cover because it, it almost looks it's very different to big finish artwork, which we look at a lot more. Um, so it looks a bit more stark. But when you look closely at it, there is a lot in this artwork mm. and there is a lot of clues as to the story. Uh, in the artwork because there's a yep. there's a particular type of gun on the cover and I'm thinking I've seen that somewhere before and I, I could not think for the life of me where I'd seen that gun before and then obviously the story plays out and you get to find out exactly what it is. Um, there was a great scene uh, 
of a man stumbling out of the of a resurrection chamber in the resurrection plant and the way it was done it really re reminded me of um, have you ever seen kenneth branner's frankenstein i have you remember yeah, that amazing. yeah so that it, there's the scenes where the where uh, robert scene, de yeah. robert de niro comes out and and it sort of reminded oh, yeah, me yeah, gave me that. yeah the, the robert de niro one i have seen that yeah maybe maybe yeah. i subconsciously stole it <laughs> it was a long time ago when i saw it whoever did the sound effects had that in mind too um there's nice little references like the black hole of tartarus uh as well so yeah. you, you know you've said how will how much the sixth doctor means to you so you've put in references that came out during the sixth doctor's era yeah i've got i've got something there about uh, a big spoilerific point too because it was it was mentioning it was mentioning something that we already knew throughout the story, but it wasn't actually named until right at the end. Is that too vague, me saying that? No, that's vague enough. Yeah. Vague enough? If I say yeah. more than that, it will spoil it, and I don't, want, I don't really there, want to spoil there's it. Some good, yeah, no, you don't want to. It's, it's definitely uh, worth a listen. It's, I mean, we've, we're having a bit of a second Doctor Fest at the moment with Big Finish and, and Beyond War Games coming out uh, recently. Well, we had a drought for years, so it's only appropriate to get a bit of a fest now. Exactly. And uh, I mean, the, the Companion Chronicles was only done earlier this year. And I guess that's because Fraser didn't have the remote set up, so they could only record it recently. So I'm so glad this came out. It must have been hellishly painful for you to wait this long, Will, for oh, it to, to be produced. Oh, it, it was, it was. Oh, it was, yeah. Because um, uh, I was told initially when, when I was commissioned and, and I wrote the first draft that it would be out the, the following year. Um so I was commissioned in the summer of 2019. I think it was set for a September 2020 release. Um, so for it to come out in 2022. So summer, summer for you is three years ago now. Yeah, yeah, agonizing. But we, it gave us the time to, to polish it up, you know. Uh, it went through about, I think, five drafts. And uh, the changes were just simple things, not, nothing made. So I, I overwrote it. I wrote far too much on the first draft. I didn't realise. I, I thought an hour-long story, you know, would be a fair few words. It isn't. It's 20 A4 pages, really, uh, an hour-long story. And I was told 20,000 words, and I, I wrote 30,000. <laughs> well, that stuff you were saying uh, about the family at the beginning, there was a whole, whole sequence there uh, that had to be lopped out just to get the word count down, because I'd approached it. I remember Russell T. Davis saying that uh, with the television show, with Chris Eccleston and David Tennant, that uh, it's, he brings the audience in through the eyes of a family. You have Rose, Tyler, you have a mother, you have Rose's boyfriend, and we enter the world of the Doctor through the eyes of a family. And I thought, and he, you know, each time he brought new companions in, that's how it was done. Um, and I thought that was a really nice way of doing it, actually. So I, I, I decided to tackle mine that way, and we, we enter the story through the eyes of a, of a family. But I wanted to set up the family and show the listener what these people are like, what, what's the relationship like. Uh, and there's, there's a whole sequence, two full scenes, that are, had to be ripped out of the story. Um, well, good thing, too. Less is always more... <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, I, you hit, you, you hit the, you hit the family in a moment of crisis yeah. and 
and the the whole suspense and the whole mystery is uh, is risen in that one scene. If you'd had extra scenes before that, it would have dulled it all down. Yeah. My idea was to do a before and after scene. Here's what they're like before it happens. And I had a whole scene where the, where there's a terrible catastrophe involving the girl. And then later on, she comes strolling out of the resurrection plant to meet the family. And uh, so that, that was my idea, a before and after. But what what really all, all these things, Philip, are, are the, the hallmarks of a novice, someone who has never written for audio before, apart from a fan audio. Uh, so I, I, it was a steep learning curve, but I, I got there. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the process. And I, I went in, obviously I've seen and heard loads of interviews with authors and script editors and what have you over the years. And I know it's all about collaboration and it's about sometimes you have to sacrifice things and get rid of things that, that you really like for the sake of the whole production. So I went in knowing that I might have to cut things I really like uh, but most of most of it is there, you know, um, so I'm thrilled to bits with it. The only thing I'm slightly gutted about is the change of the title, because, uh, and that was the first thing I was asked to change, that I called it the What sanctity. was the reason for that? Well, I called it, first of all, I called it the sanctity of death, because obviously if you're in a community where you're worked to death, and then resurrected back to life, and then worked to death again, and then, and over and over and over and over, the term "the sanctity of life" becomes meaningless. Uh, and also, it was a it was a comment you said earlier, Philip, about the industrial setting. Um, I'm not I'm not from Birmingham, but I'm from the northwest, so I'm from uh, you know Manchester, Worsley, the, the the seat of the industrial revolution. Yeah. Um, so it has that Birmingham Peaky Blinders feel, but also where I was starting from was the northwest of England. But it's just all the same kind of thing. And the idea that life is cheap and the idea that, um, and, and even in, in modern day working environment, we've, we've all worked for employers who, who don't, don't care what the impact of the job is on you as long as you get it done. But that feeling of being worked to death um, runs all the way through it. So I thought I'll call it the sanctity of death, which I, I thought was uh, quite poetic and lovely and just right. And then um, the first note I got back after they'd uh, agreed to commission it was uh, we we appreciate the title, the sanctity of death, and it's poetic and all of that. But it doesn't really tell a browsing listener what it is. Uh, whereas the resurrection plant does, it's kind of, you know, the name, it's on the tin, what it is. Um, so I, I thought, okay, then I, I much prefer the sanctity of death, but I came into this project with the attitude of I'll do whatever they say. So I did. I, did, I didn't object at all. I gave my reasons for wanting it to be called the sanctity of death, but, but I accepted the change. The resurrection plant does describe it straight away i can't argue with that yeah I, I totally hear what you're saying and i i would feel a twinge of angst at having to change a title because titles to me are very very important if you if you're writing them uh especially when i'm writing it's a starting point for me i'm approaching it from a creative point you know from a creative area uh, uh the, the poetry of it the feel of it the vibe they're approaching it from marketing 
you know? And they're thinking, we need a title that fits you in the face. We need a title that describes what it is and makes you want to read the blurb on the back. Fair enough. When they do when they do roadworks in uh, Australia, I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but they often have a sign that says "road plant," and I always visualise this little shrubbery on the side of the road. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like that's what I thought of when I heard that title, "The Resurrection Plant." Yeah. I thought, oh, is it some kind of plant? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, I've had uh, a no, few it's a people factory. ask me. Yeah, a few people. If it didn't have a factory on the cover artwork, you know, you would think it's it's a literal plant. And, and people touch it or they're infected by it and, it and it resurrects them back to life. So, yeah, it's not quite it's not quite doing the job it's designed to do. <laughs> um, we, we have a place near where I live where it says, uh, like you say, road plant. It says, warning, plant crossing. And what it means is that means there's a gate and there are vehicles coming in and out on the road and be careful. But I visualize a huge potted plant walking across the road. Like a Trifford or something. Yeah, because it says <laughs> plants crossing. Yeah. So, so yeah, I can understand people thinking the resurrection plant is a literal plant. Yeah. But uh, overall, I think it's a fantastic release and I hope there's many more to come from the pen of Will Hadcroft. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, the BBC or this this BBC audio range is getting better and better. These um, it is actually it's I'm, very I'm very exciting. I've become very stuff. very impressed by what's coming out with them from them at the moment. The, and you've not uh, only got these doctor doctor specific releases, you've got the beyond the doctor releases as well, which are, are taking a different view, and uh, they're totally entertaining as well. So are. we're we're very spoilt for for choice when it comes to audio these days. Yeah, a lot of quality. Hmm. That point, that point you were saying uh, earlier, uh, I think it might have been Philip, the, the plot point we can't mention because it will just ruin it all. Um, yeah. That, that was one of the reasons why making it the second Doctor was, was suddenly it all clicked because when it was the seventh Doctor and Ace, that plot point, first of all, that plot, plot point wasn't there. I hadn't thought of it. The, the original concept was um the plant the attitudes towards work the industrial setting and the monster that turns up in the story uh, and the reasons for that monster coming into existence um that was all there in the original idea uh but then when i switched it to the second doctor i felt that the story was a little bit too thin it needed something else another twist and then i started thinking about the second doctor and uh what we knew about the doctor at that point in the series history and i thought oh i can play around with this you know you said where, where does it fit in season six i would say somewhere between the invasion and the war games so it's somewhere there I, I knew I knew that uh, the second Doctor had used the sonic screwdriver a couple of times, so I could put that in. But they weren't that familiar with it, and mm. the other the other stuff, of course, they don't know at all. So I was able to have this wonderful situation of telling a story where the Doctor has figured out what's going on. The audience are beginning to work it out as well but nobody else knows and cannot know either. Uh, so I was able to play 
because the doctor was extremely secretive in those days. He didn't know anything about anything to do with his origins or anything. So yeah, yeah, you were able to play the secret, but be in on the secret, you know? Um, I had a lot of fun doing that. And it was this, a scene very near the end. When I was, when I was trying to, I, want, I wanted them to take the bait, you know, Michael and John. Uh, I thought, I'm going to write one of the scenes up. Because I, I was asked for, first of all, just a, a couple of paragraphs to describe it. They've got that. Then they wanted a two-page story synopsis to flesh it out. They got that. And I thought, I'm going to write up one scene to demonstrate how it would work as prose. So I, I wrote up this, the penultimate scene. That was the first scene I wrote and sent that to them and said, it will be like this. And that's what secured it, I think, because Michael, the producer, really liked that scene. And in fact, later on in the editing process, when I was being told, you've got to get the word count down, I removed that scene. Even though I loved it and thought it was crucial, uh, I thought, it's got to go. I can't think of anything else to get rid of. So I ditched that. And then I had a note from Michael saying, uh, what have you got rid of that scene for? <laughs> yeah, that's my favourite scene. I put it back in, and John and I worked out other things that we could get rid of without ruining the story. So uh, that aspect of the of, of the plot, uh, the big spoiler, um, yeah, that's my favourite aspect of the whole thing, and it would appear to be theirs as well. Now, the big finish offer writers there uh, op the opportunity to um, to attend the studio recordings. Did you get that opportunity too? No. No, I, I, I wasn't invited to the recording. Uh, I, I'm wondering if it perhaps it's because there's only going to be the producer, the sound recordist, and the reader present. Whereas at Big Finish, you've got a cast, cast. you've got writers, yeah. producers, directors, everybody is there, aren't they? You know? Whereas, it, I don't know, would it, would it be off-putting to have the reader producer, the sound recordist, and the author of the thing present. I don't know. Is that the reason the writers don't get invited to the BBC Audio Originals? Is it because it, they don't want to spend the money on a train ticket? I, I don't know. But no, we, I, I wasn't invited. I also, I didn't get to hear it before it was published either. About a month before it was published, Michael got in touch and said, you'll receive some complimentary copies just a few days before it's published. So I was going on Amazon every day, clicking on the excerpt button, hoping that an excerpt had been put up. And they didn't put that up till it was published either. So yeah, I, I, I didn't hear it until very recently. Staggering. And what a dream come true for me. You know, I, I've been wanting to get something like this to happen for years and years. And now here we are. That's fantastic. I love it. I love your story. And uh, I hope there's, I certainly hope there's more to come. And based on the quality of this story, and I think Philip would agree that yeah. uh, there certainly is potential for much more to come from your pen. Well, there's certainly a lot more to come in me. It's whether they want it. So we'll see. Thank you very much for talking about the resurrection plant, Will Hadcroft. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Now, there's just one more thing, and you're going to stick around for this, I hope. It's our recommendations. We like to recommend something that we've been listening to, or anything in your case, Will, if you like. Um, 
I would like as the guest to ask you to go first, but I can't ask you to go first because my notes over here say that it's Philip's turn. Yeah, I'm utterly selfish and insist on going first every time. Um, I'm going to recommend a new podcast. Um, it's got nothing to do with science fiction or Doctor Who or anything, um, but it's, it's, it's actually captured my attention. It's called Raising Teens. Um, I think people might be aware that you know, I have six children, um, two who are currently... So it's your podcast. <laughs> no, no, um, I wish. Uh, two are currently teenagers. One's about to become a teenager in a couple of months' time, so I'll soon have three dreaded teenagers. Um, I've already got three through the teenage years. Um, but this is by a um, child psychologist called Colleen Smart. It's an Australian production. And during during COVID, she was just doing little 10, 15-minute um, bits and pieces about how to raise teens and, and, what, and things just to think about. But she's just started her fourth season. She's now bringing on special guests. And so guests from around the world coming and talking about ways in which you could be wise. So for those of you with teenagers, um, if you want some ideas, the first, the first one I've just listened, the one I've just listened to from the fourth season, the first one in the new series, looks at Generation um, Alpha, um, which is the, the new group going through, but also focus on Gener Generation Z. Um, or the I, I generation they're often known as, which is kind of the seven-year-olds to about 15 or so, a bit older, or 18, I guess it is now. Um, it just looks at the positives about that generation. I think it's been very easy to be very down on some groups, but actually realizing that as they're becoming adults and older, that maybe they're not as bad as we thought they were. So it's, it's, it's quite uplifting, it's quite positive, but lots of good advice. So, yeah. If you're a parent out there, or if you are, if you have kids in your life, aunts, you know, if you're an aunt, an uncle, godparents, whatever you might be, um, it's just a very easy to listen to, very enthralling storytelling podcast on raising teens. There you go. Hmm. What about you, Will? Is there anything you'd like to recommend? Uh, yeah, I would like to recommend a, a book I had a hand in publishing. Uh, it's a children's book called Rhino Wants a Wife <laughs> by Lucy Baker, who is the daughter of Colin Baker. And uh, she, she came to us with this idea of, um, it's, uh, it's obviously for small children. So any Doctor Who fans or indeed anybody out there who has small children, I'd like to recommend this to you. The story is there is this rhinoceros in the jungle and he's got his friend Monkey who's advising him, him and helping him. And Rhino is looking for a partner. He wants to get married. So he's going around the jungle asking all the various animals what they would recommend as the perfect partner. So an example is he goes to Giraffe and says, Giraffe, I'm looking for a wife. What do you recommend? And Giraffe says, well, what, what you really should be looking for is uh, somebody with an extremely long neck uh, who can eat the leaves of the from the tops of the trees, and of course, and, and has very long eyelashes and very pretty, and and of course, giraffe is describing her another giraffe. yeah, another giraffe, her perfect mate, and so each animal reacts similarly. You know, the tortoise thinks so. You look, you're looking for someone who has a hard shell on the back, really. <laughs> each animal is describing their perfect uh, mate. And in the end, of course, I, I'm going to give it away because there aren't going to be small children watching this. Rhino's perfect partner is another rhino. And that, that's uh, the, the moral of the story there. But it's told in, a, in that kind of rhyming 
the way Winnie the Pooh is written, you know, that kind of rhyming quality to the, to the, 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 the prose. It's illustrated um, very nicely in a modern way, where rather than classic paintings, which is what Owen Clark would do, this is more sort of computer enhanced uh, imaging uh, by Robin Diamond. Uh, so that's Rhino Wants a Wife by Lucy Baker. If you've got small children, go and get it. Yeah, I might, sounds like I'd love this. I think too, I love kids' books. Thank you for that. Dwayne, what do you, you, you want to recommend today? Well, I'm going to recommend a podcast too, something I've been getting into more and more. We had Toby Haydock on recently, and he's also appeared on this podcast, believe it or not. He doesn't visit many podcasts, does our Toby? Uh, but it's Goon Pod. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of The Goon Show. And uh, there's this guy in New Zealand who has done this fantastic podcast called Goon Pod. And he talks to, he brings guests on to talk about episodes, talk about the lives of Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe. Um, and uh, recent, his most recent episode featured Dirk Maggs. So Dirk Maggs, very involved in uh, with Douglas Adams in the in the most recent Hitchhikers. So, yeah, of course, the Goons were probably one of the most influential radio shows of all time for for people in audio. So uh, it's fascinating to get some some of those in depth stories on on Goon Pod. So that's my recommendation for this week. Interesting. Excellent. Sounds great. Thanks, Dwayne. All right. That only leaves us to say thank you, Will, for, for joining us. It's been a, a pleasure to hear your stories and uh, congratulations on the release of The Resurrection Plant. Thank you very much. It's a joy. <laughs> and uh, thank you for being here too, Philip. It's been a pleasure and a privilege being in your company as usual. Oh, thank you, Drain. It's been a joy being with you as well. Have a lovely week. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll catch you all next time. This has been the Sirens of Audio episode 120 with our guest Will Hadcroft on the release of his new BBC audio, The Resurrection Plant, with your hosts Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Original theme music composed by Joe Kramer. Contact us or check out all our details at our website, sirensofaudio.com. Drop us a line at sirensofaudio at gmail.com post a comment on our socials or our YouTube channel and let us know your thoughts on this or any one of our episodes. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll hear you next time.